out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week it's going to be the turn of the new fast automatic daffodils because I recently spoke to their guitarist, Doland Hewison, to find out more about life, love and poetry and much more. Life in the band, post-band and also his new solo work and album that's going to be coming out very soon. In fact... May, June 2023. So I'll um, give you the link in the notes below. But this is the interview. Um, so after several minutes of interesting but casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Dolan, it's over to you. Yeah, I was really, I, I was brought up in a very um, musical household. Not not that people play music, but my parents were um, big Beatles and Stones fans. And, and in fact, I went there, I was at Hyde Park when I was three. My, on my um, parents' shoulders. My, my God. To a like, Pink Floyd concert at um, Crystal Palace when I was like in a, you know, in a, uh, yeah, still in a, what do you call it, a, a papoose. Um, so it was always, always around. And actually, I grew up re- listening to a lot of classical music. And um, and then I got piano lessons. I lived in the middle of nowhere in Northumberland. There was a lady at the end of the lane. She used to cycle down there, get a piano lesson. My parents were really broke at the time, so they sort of scrimped and saved to me to do piano lessons because I was just interested in it. So I just really only like classical music. And then I got to about nine or ten, and I started discovering the Stones records lying around the house and the Beatles. Um, but the thing that really, I, I think the thing that really, the two things that really happened was one, like at about 13, was sort of going to high school and punk rock and that being a, a music that was um, your parents not that my parents hated it, but didn't like it, didn't appreciate. So that was that that was mine all of a sudden. So that that awakening. And um, but I think I was one of the really, really, really profound musical experiences of my life was listening to Alexis. Do you remember Alexis Corner? Yes. And I remember he had a show at seven o'clock on a Sunday, and I was in my bedroom listening, and BB King came on and it, he played the live version of Worry, Worry, Worry. And I, it absolutely blew me away. I couldn't believe that I'd never, ever heard this music. I remember running down and going, have you heard of B.B. King? Do you know who B.B. King is? And my parents are going, of course we do. Um, and I remember that real awakening and then sort of that combined with punk rock. And then I, I think Bowie was the sort of the gateway to the, the gateway drug to getting really serious about music. I yes. remember really uh, low, that album, and getting a hold of a copy of Low. Which must have been out a good four or five years when I when I got hold of it, but that that felt very grown up, and that was a sort of a, a, a sort of birth of a sort of seriousness about music, I suppose. Yes. So your your parents, obviously, mine mine was sort of. Um, I mean, I came from the sort of depths of East Anglia in the countryside, okay. and and being very kind of working class, which I guess ninety nine percent of the population were. They. I mean, they they kind of when they were they they were the generation who never borrowed money, so they would sell yeah. things, they would work really hard, save a bit of cash. So they didn't have a record player, you know, during their yeah. kind of. I mean, I think my dad had one in the fifties, then he sort of yeah. sold it. They got married, got a little bungalow, and all that kind of malarkey. But he was kind of into the world of kind of I don't know, really bad country and western with a bit of yeah. Elvis Presley. But I mean, things like the the sixties, even though they weren't that old during that time you know that just didn't yeah. touch their life at all I mean it 
but your parents obviously had a bohemian attitude because because was this Pink Floyd at the did you say Ali Pali? Yeah, apparently. I mean, only I honestly I only found that out a few years ago. Right. Because I know there was, because, you know, the 60s in a simplistic way, you know, was like 63, the Beatles started by 67, the summer of love. And I know, I remember there was this concert at the Ali Pali in June, July, which was kind of the 14 hour Technicolor dream with, you know, Pink Floyd playing. You wouldn't have been there, would you? I don't know if that's my mom. Yes. It was, oh. was, was it the moment? Was there a Helter Skelter and Yoko Ono and, and Arthur Brown? I think Arthur Brown was at every event then. But, you know, I remember there was this fundraiser, you know, for the International Times that was done by Barry Miles and all those guys like Joe Boyd, who produced the early Pink Floyd and then Nick Drake and the in- incredible string band. But that was quite a kind of a moment because 67, everything, it was the honeymoon period. And then things start to go a bit a wall, don't they? By the end. Well, I was born '66, so if I was still in a papoose, I could have been could have been '67. I'll have to, I'll ask my mum. Yes, get sort of chucked it in. I was just like about five years ago chatting my mum. She said, "Oh yeah, I took you to see Pink Floyd as well at the um, at the Ali Pali." Ali Pali, that well, that might have been then. You might have been at the 14 hour Technicolor scene, dream, yeah. seeing you know Sid Barrett and Yoko Ono doing you know some Can't performance. No, you would have been one. But even but even so, Hyde Park on a nice day watching yeah. butterflies being released into the air. Yeah. That was yeah. that was fantastic. You were there. This is very yeah. exciting. Yeah, yeah, so your parents obviously were excited about music. They were they had aspirations for you. Yeah, I think what the my parents and my dad is from a very, you know, council state sort of background, but they had me really young and my mum was very middle class. They had me when they were 19. And they um and they were that first generation that really I think you know there's no conscription that that working class people like my dad could kind of get ahead and and so they moved to the and I was born in London originally and um so sort of spent the first sort of five years of my life there so they had this sort of uh, very um I suppose a, a new attitude you know even people a, a few years older than them wouldn't have been sort of caught or swept up in it. And then my parents also, the other thing that happened when I moved, so when I was about six, we moved to the middle of nowhere, Northumberland. And that was very influenced by uh, Paul McCartney moving to the Isle of Mull. They were right. like, they were the first sort of generation that moved back to the country. Everyone's trying to move away from the countryside. And they were the first generation that sort of moved, uh, kind of moved back. And yes. So for them, it was a bit of a sort of um, uh, an experiment. I mean, my parents weren't hippies. My dad was had a, ran a business and... You know, it's pretty hard-nosed character and everything, but they were sort of definitely uh, swept up by the idea of, you know, culture um, and and was sort of tuned into what was going on culturally, I think, uh, very much at that time. Yeah, because I, I remember, I mean, I was too young, but I found out about this. So were they from London and then they went up, you know, Northumberland? Was no, that no, they were from Newcastle and then they New- moved down to, uh, to, North, to New- London. Um, right because i know from from that 60s thing the early 70s there was a lot of people moved out to east anglia because there was very cheap rent and people got you know farm cottages for a couple of pounds and then they they, there was a couple of really influential books there was one by i think john seymour who did a book called self-sufficiency which is like how you can survive off the land and lots of people had a go at being potters or making little crafts and going to these very folky fairs that were around in these sort of 70s in East Anglia. And, you know, there was this kind of idea that you could go to a fair every weekend and just about make some money and get a horse and yeah. cart and get some chickens. I mean, it was a very idealistic time. Yeah, yeah. 
No, they were definitely weren't. They didn't go that far. Uh, yeah, I think uh, my dad would have more likely to punch hippies than be a hippie. Um, <laughs> than hug, hug a tree. Than hug a tree. But, um, yeah, they were certainly sort of, I think they were very uh, liberated as they didn't feel the weight of class that, uh, you know, as I say, a few years older, you know, my dad sort of very much felt that, you know, it was his time and things were holding them back and it doesn't matter where he was born and he yes. could just he could get, kind of get ahead, really. And so that sort of always stayed with me as a, a sort of a concept of that DIY, do-it-yourself, if you want to do something, kind of, I suppose, you know, get off your backside and start it. And um, that kind of one of the reasons I sort of really liked uh, when I, you know, sort of fast-forwarding, I, I was in Newcastle and I really wanted to do music and... There was nothing happening there, and um, I went to Liverpool for a bit, and nothing was really happening there. And I, I came to Manchester because of a really a bit of a misheard lyric from the the Smiths um, when I heard um, this charming man. It said, "It says a jumped up pantry boy," and I thought it said a jumped up country boy, and I thought that's me, and I'm going to go where the Smiths are because I like I love the Fall, I love the Smiths, love Joy Division. I love that, you know, that kind of Manchester and, the, and things seem to be happening there. So I came to Manchester in, you know, like early 80, like 84, 85, I can't remember. And um, what, what really struck me in Manchester was that people didn't sit around complaining about something not happening for them. They went out and did it. So instead of saying there's no clubs that play the music we like, people just start a club that play right. the music we liked. And it was a real entrepreneur, there's a real entrepreneurial kind of get up and get at them thing in, in Manchester. Certainly there was then. And um, it just sort of really struck me as a, as a place I could get something done, you know. Yeah. So when you hit, you know, like 82, you were 16 at that stage. Did you leave yeah. school or did you literally do your Jack Kerouac moment and hit the road? No, I, well, I went, I left school at 18. I did do Jack Kerouac thing around Europe for a couple of years. And then I came to, um, to uh, university here. Right. So in those days, you could get a full grant, you know. So, full grant, I know. It's just, yeah, so people... we just got full grant with the full intention of putting a band together. Um, and that's what happened. I met Justin from the fads. And, um, you know, we, we got, like, free rent and free rehearsal space in Hume. Um, you know, the, Hume, that fact that no one paid any rent, did more for the arts in Manchester than any scheme that's ever happened in Manchester because everyone could just do what the hell they wanted, you know? Yes, uh, this is true. So it, it sort of fostered a real uh, a real creative hub and it was right on the edge of the city. Um, and there's just loads going on. And it was, there was the kind of, I mean, I don't mean this in a nostalgic way, but if when we wrote um, Big, we were like, you know what we need on here is we need some of those bongos, which what we meant was congas. And um, so someone said, well, there's a guy down there about five doors down in the flats, he plays congas. So we knocked on and he wasn't there, but this other guy was there who did play congas called Icarus, who ended up joining the band. And he came down and played on that. Um, so it was very much like that. You could, you know, knock on, break the guitar string. There'd be someone with a guitar string you could borrow. And, um, yes. So it was a little community. It was really, it was really, it was great, actually. I mean, when you look back at the photographs, you realise what an utter shithole it was. But at the time, it didn't feel like that, you know. Uh, and yes. It was quite dangerous. It got a bit hairy there, you know. It got it got quite bad um, towards the end. Well, I know one of the members of Big Flame, or perhaps they all lived in in those those blocks. But I think what happened for them when 
they came back one night and the whole flat was completely empty and it yeah. was like i think the dream has finished we we're going to move on now we've got nothing there's literally nothing to come back to because it's been completely cleared out so and i think all scenes start with that slight honeymoon period and there's a lot of political ideology or cultural ideology that comes on and then some you know little sort of faction starts to creep in which thinks oh this is a good scene which probably doesn't quite have the same they might have the look all the kind of more tattoos or dreadlocks, but there's a kind of element that kind of, it gets a bit heavy and hairy, as you said, and um, that's when it all turns bad. But yeah, for a, for a bit, you know, I I think the other thing that sort of, and again, talking about nostalgia and rose-tinted sunglasses, you know, like the early 80s, you know, there was, the, you know, the Thatcher years, and then there was the, the Falkland crisis, the miners' strike, then there was Greenham Common. But then, you know, with all that unemployment, there was a job seekers' allowance and the enterprise allowance schemes, which, yeah. again, you know, most uh, most 80s indie bands in that period went, oh, yes, I was, we were all on that scheme for a year. Yeah, we you know. did that. You have to go <laughs> pretend you had an interview, and we've been on the front cover of... Um... Uh, one of the main, one of like sounds or or enemy or or I can't remember which one it was. I think it was sounds. It must have been sounds because it was John Robert put us on there. So we were on the front cover of of sounds, which is a big deal at the time. And we had to go to this, you know, enterprise land scheme. Pretend that we hadn't actually. You had to pretend you hadn't started your business. It was to get everything ready. So we hadn't played a gig. We had no publicity or anything like this. And we were sort of on the front cover of sounds, telling this lady that, oh yeah, well, we're, I think we're just about ready now to be able to start playing a gig but we were touring and everything by then so but everyone was doing it you know everyone was doing it and, and signing on and going oh i'm gonna be on top of the pops uh, <laughs> yeah, <exactly>. <laughs> <laughs> awkward so that was good so yeah so what was your degree in by the way uh a joint honors in english and art history right there you go it was a, so it was it was interesting because there was um the hicksons who were from the came to, you know, from based from the UEA. I mean, they came to the UEA with the intention, Charlie, one of them, Charlie Hickson and Terry Edwards, They all their intention was to basically start a band and do that, you know, and possibly do a degree and have to turn up occasionally. But it was very much about yeah. kind of creating that kind of three years of having a go at things. So I think it was just a um, a lucky time in a way. Yeah, I think, I think it's very, you know, it's definitely very privileged, you know. I've got two, you know, Three children, um, but two of them are sort of in the twenties. Neither of them have gone to university. They 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 just don't want to get that level of debt, or or um, you know they're, they're worried about the commitment and coming out with a fifty sixty thousand uh, pound debt. And I think it just sort of spoils that sort of um, irreverent um, take on things. It's it's amazing. It's such a privilege to have three years that don't really matter. Yes, really. You know, you can just sort of. I mean, we put them to very good use, but you know, you can muck around and and then you know, try things and experiment in a way that, with that pressure of like a, a, a you know student loan, you're just thinking, I can't really. I'm racking up a massive debt here. I can't be faffing around and uh, you know not going to lectures and staying up all night playing gigs and or taking drugs and jamming for 10 hours, you know, you just, you think, I've got to turn up. Yes. So I think that's, it's a shame, it, it, but it, it it was very privileged. We were very lucky. Yes. So how did the band sort of get together? Were you all from, you know, Polytechnic University at that stage, or was it just generally the community around you? You were all, we're all at the Poly, actually. We did, um, so I, I'm a friend, a mutual friend introduced Justin and myself, and then, we, I can't remember, 
we met Pez the drummer, and then we sort of the three of us played together for ages in the in the flats in Hume. Just you know. At the time, we didn't even know how to tune our instruments. Genuinely, we used to tune the the bass. We had this theory that the bass should start at D. Uh, I can't remember what it was. Anyway, it was all... Uh, and then we discovered it was totally wrong because the neck of the bass got bent so much from the tent. It was tuned far too high. And we took it to, like, a place to get, you know, the neck straightened. And the guys had told us what we're doing. So we had to go back and rewrite everything, start a new, a new set. But obviously, at that age, you don't care. And then Andy, there's a very long, I can't really remember the ins and outs of it, but basically the singer through a friend of a friend and then there was the dream involved and it all got very, I can't remember the ins of it, but I dreamt about this singer called Andy and then I rang him up and it wasn't the Andy I was expecting, it was this other Andy. And I was saying, well, do you sing? And he said, yeah. So, well, do you fancy singing in this band? And I knew by this stage it wasn't the right Andy. <laughs> but I just thought, well, let's give it a go, you know. And he turned out, he turned up, and he was just incredible. You know, most people are like mumbling like that. Yes, he's just like straight in your face. But he was—he did a, an acting degree and was on a course with Steve Coogan and John Thompson and all those guys. And he—he he was the star of the course. And we said, "Listen, Andy, you don't want to be—you're going to go nowhere with acting, mate. You know, it's, it's, it, you need to join this obscure indie band. We're going to make it." Yes, so that's what he did, and then John Thompson and uh, Steve Coogan went on to huge things, of course. Yes, and was the fanzine culture quite important to you during that stage? Because I know with um, Henry Normal, he he started his kind of yeah. poetry writing through fanzines, didn't he? Did you had you sort of also been a bit of a a fanzine fan or writer? No, none of us, to my knowledge, none of us wrote for them, but we were very. Uh, they were great friends to us, the fanzines. It, they, that was the sort of the first attention and the springboard that we got. I think without that, you know, without the fanzines, we wouldn't have got um, recognised at all because we we literally started, we, you know, no idea, no management, no label, no nothing. Um, and we, we, we were utterly clueless as to how you go about, how do you start a band? There's no, there was no blueprint. There was no internet. No. Uh, but we we kind of instinctively, I think we instinctively knew we had to be quite organised, and um, you know, uh, we spent paid quite a bit of attention to visuals and things like that, and um, and then photographs and stuff. So that that all sort of helped us get into the fanzine things and listings and stuff. But really, it came through the fanzine thing and, and that sort of scene. And it, it's interesting how you get lumped in and how history is told, and you know, the convenience of history, the wanting linear narratives. <laughs> and the books that don't fit into that linear narrative get ignored, you know. So the whole Manchester thing, you know, is it's presented now as this, you know, coherent movement and of like-minded people doing like-minded things. Well, you know, it wasn't anything like that whatsoever. Um, it was very, very, very diverse with all sorts of people making music, all knowing each other and all influencing each other and all involved in various aspects of all sorts of different things. But obviously, when they come to tell a narrative, it's like you know, King of the Slums and dub sex and bands even like us don't really quite fit into that narrative. So you get sort of you know pushed to the side. It's not like a resentful thing. It's just fact that's that's history, isn't it? So people want to go. There was people doing raves, and then the Happy Mondays came along, and then DJs remixed them. Yeah, Manchester, and everyone took ecstasy. You know, so. 
quite interesting. The same thing like I was saying about the kitchen, you know, to, to all the hacienda. But, you know, if you talk to anyone who really knew what was going on, it was it really came out of the kitchen. Right. The gay club and in, 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 um, the whole ecstasy scene came out of the gay scene in Manchester as well. Yes, it is. It is. I mean, yeah, it, it's kind of fascinating in that side, because also you had people, like, I suppose, a guy called Gerald and also 808 State were coming up at that stage as well. So yeah. that must have been kind of interesting because the narrative I know, because because, you know, on a simplistic level, you know, there was there's lots of scenes, but there was like punk, post punk. Then there's this kind of indie scene. And for me, you know, between 83 and 87, you know, that was the years of the Smiths. There was definitely a vibe, you know, there was a... But the bands within that period, you know, no one wants to be part of the C86 show or no one, or not, cassette. Everyone said, no, I don't want to be on that cassette and be part of that group because we're nothing like it. I mean, they all want to be on it now, obviously. But I mean, at the the time, you know, but then 87, you know, when the Smiths broke up, they did feel like... I sort of realise every five years, roughly, there's this kind of new wave of 16, 18-year-olds who want their scene and they don't want a band who's been around the block and, you know, snogged, yes. snogged by other people for a few years. They want their own, you know, they want to discover their own band. So I suppose you came along in 88, it must have felt like you were going to be sort of part of a new, a new wave, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, we really, I mean, I love the Smiths and, and Justin... Loves the Smiths and Pez loves the Smiths, um, but um, we were definitely like really did not like all the sort of almost you know, sort of tribute acts and the jangly guitars and Rickenbackers and, and you know we so we were like going for this very angular um, you know like but we're very influenced by you know Big Flame for example and and uh, forgot what the, the Twang and Big Flame and what's the other band. The, the great leap forward that came out of of that, and we played yes. with those guys a, a, a bit. Um, was, so, the man, and we, was the man from Del Monte? Was he from Man? Were they from Manchester? Yeah, they were. That was John Ronson. You know, the guys. The he's he was the manager. John Ronson who did the Men of Stare Goats and all of that. Oh, yeah. yes. So yeah, but they were again. You know, that's really interesting. They don't really fit in. They were just like this sort of completely other thing happening, like a little mini local phenomenon. That no one was interested in outside of Manchester, but which sold out big, you know, like played to 1,500, 2,000 people in Manchester. Um, but they didn't fit into that at all. And that's, I think that's one of the interesting things when you, as you say, when you go like Gerald and, um, you know, 808 State, I mean, Gray Massey had been around the block a few times. Um, you know, he's a much older guy and an absolute genius as well, by the way. Yes. Um, but I played guitar for on a thing with Gerald and, and the singer from, uh, um, Waters Head, what's her name? Beth, Beth um, oh, yes. So I came in and I don't know if it ever got released to be honest. I came in and played a, a bit of a session with those guys, yeah. I was but... in and out of things with each other, but as you say, when the narrative emerges, it makes sense logically. You've got Voodoo Ray, you've got 8088, you know, and so on. Um and I know, I mean, the other thing that really influenced everybody, I mean, we had the three weekly music papers, but we also had John Peel. And that John Peel yeah. show was kind of this beacon of kind of new music. And, really? and, you know, and I followed him religiously. So anything between 
you know, his kind of, you know, keenness on reggae or the Bundu boys or, you know, any of those, you know, Bulgarian folk yeah. bands, you know, I sort of just thought, oh, this must be brilliant because John Peel's played it, you know, so it was it was the kind of thing that linked it all together. So with a lot of those bands, you know, because every city and town had an alternative indie night, didn't they? Probably yeah. on Monday, Tuesday or Wednesday. So, you know, they would be able to get in the transit van and go around the country and play in front of 150, 250 people who'd yeah. who'd heard them on the Peel show and possibly got an album out. So that kind of helps a band get a bit of a momentum because you probably played at the Norwich Wild Club on the Arts Centre, didn't you? Yeah, we played the Arts Centre and then uh, something Waterfront, I think it was. Yes, the Waterfront as well. And if you're really lucky, you get to the UEA, which is a bit bigger as well. So I think we played there as well, actually. You you would have you got the three bad you got the three venues in the Norwich, three of the three badges yeah you, you I'm not pessimist despite him being drunk for the entire eight years of the band he seems to have an absolute incredible um, sequential memory and he re- so he's the person to ask it. so sometimes I doubt what I'm saying sometimes I'm pretty sure did we pretty sure we played the UEA yes so how I mean when the band started. You you sort of quickly signed to play it against Sam. How did you manage to get a a deal with that label and not somebody like Creation Records or I don't know what well, factory? Well, we didn't. We we played that with first of all we signed to Playtime Records, and oh, we did play- first. We're like a local uh, label run by Paula Greenwood, and she'd um, signed the Inspiral Carpets originally. Um, so we, after about I think we got our first we got the record deal after eight gigs. It was incredible. Um, as I say, we sort of over-indexed the organisational bit of it and uh, not expected. We just thought everyone that is, you know, it has to be this organised and this rehearsed and everything. Um, so we, we got a, uh, a deal after eight uh, gigs with um, Paula and then we did three singles, Lions, Music is Shit and then Big. And then Big, obviously, that sort of broke through on a, on a you know, a much bigger level and... Um, we came to the attention to play it against Sam, but we were very we were trying to hold out for a factory or a creation um at the time. And there were there were all there's quite a bit of interest, but there was a lot of feet dragging, and we felt at the time, rightly or wrongly, I mean, you just you kind of got to remember you're just really young men, you're 21. What do you know? Um, but we just instinctively felt at the time that all these bands like um Paris Angels and um, Northside and, well, there was a whole raft of those other bands. And we felt it was really important to get the LP out before any of those other bands did. Because yeah. we knew there was going to be a window of, you know, opportunity and there's going to, people are going to be fed up with the whole Manchester thing and there'll be a, a backlash. So we were playing against them, were keenest and, and ready to do it immediately. So we, we went with those guys just to... Um, uh, to get the the record out fast and get the LP out and get I suppose get a foothold and establish ourselves um, and and lo and behold by the time those bands did get around to doing the LPs you know it was too late so you know it turns out it was the right move it was just done entirely from uh, instinct yes did you come across a band called Laugh from Manchester who I think went on to be part of is it Interstellar oh yes. Interstellar, no, Interstellar, yeah. And I think, because I, I remember John Peel playing this, an EP or two from a band called Laugh, and I think they went on to be part of another band in Manchester. They did a song called, 
Take Your Time, and then also Paul McCartney. It was, you know, it was very 80s, jingly, jangly, indie yeah. pop, you know, so... Um, well, they've been not- around a while, and the World of Twist, uh, Interstellar World of Twist, and World of Twist were a fantastic band. And again, they were just sort of, you know, two beats shy of, of being right on the on the zeitgeist, I felt. Um, and I know they went through a lot of, you know, to and fro with getting in the studio, getting the record finished and stuff. Yeah, so we were playing against Sam because we just they just paid for us to go in the studio. We produced that first album ourselves. I mean, how the hell they let us do this? I don't know, but we just went in. I mean, the whole thing cost about twelve grand uh, and sold you know fifty, sixty thousand copies. So it was a very profitable record. So they were very pleased. Yes, uh, and John Peel, you got your John Peel session, didn't you? All couple. Yeah, we did three. In fact. Um, so uh, we we got on John Peel, and this is absolutely true. We hitched down to London, um, and, and and waited outside the BBC at midnight, and collared him, and said, "You've got to uh, you've got to listen to this. You've got to play this." And he said, "Oh, I've heard about you, lads. Someone said that you're better than the four. I very much doubt it." He said, <laughs> uh, but lo and behold, he did. He, we then. Um, we got a, a, a peel session um, off the back of that, and um, the the engineers we worked with um, absolutely loved working with us. Actually, it was really the the I had all this. In fact, I've got it in the background here. This old, very very old Vox AC30, which is the most beautiful sounding amplifier, which I got given. You know, I didn't even I don't know what I was doing. I just given it, but it happens to sound fabulous. And they were very excited by this very old Vox. And the feedback I could generate out of it. My God, that's amazing. Did you get the, the famous Dale Griffith producer? Yeah, we did, yeah. Yeah, with his clipboard. I mean, he didn't do anything. He just turned up and was like, are you on time? Like, uh, we'll just run a bit. Oh, well, hurry up then. And then, you know, that was it really. Yes. Uh, not realising, you know, I found out later it was the drummer out of Mott the Hoople. Um, but, yeah. <laughs> yes. and, and the, but the third the third peel session we did was the best one by a, a long way but by then we were comfortable with that I think everything happened so fast uh, you know you, you're so in a way what's really exciting going back to the C86 stuff is that sort of DIY like we don't know how to play we don't know how to tune our instruments but we want to do something and you kind of literally make it up as you go along so you are, you're given this you don't have any fear one you're very young um two you're totally naive and see there's no one out there telling you you can't do it so for for us and and that's what i see with my children now is they they can every time they do anything they'll go on the internet and go how how to get a peel session would be on the internet now yes you know, are they going to go traveling to vietnam and then they go oh Look at all these problems. We find all the problems first because everyone's that overload of information. Whereas we didn't have that, you know. No one said you can't do this. No one said, oh, it's a real pain in the arse and it's really difficult. And by the way, you must never ever try and mug him outside of the BBC because he hates that. <laughs> we didn't have any of that. We just like, what is the shortest route to doing that? Um, and I think that C86 sensibility, like I spoke about right at the start, I think we were very influenced by that. You know, get up the fanzine culture. If you want to write about something, start a fanzine. If you want a club night, close your music, start a club night. So yes. we didn't have any of that inhibition at all. Um, yeah. I thought that was the healthiest thing that came out of it, really. 
I think um, Billy Bragg did something quite similar, didn't he? he? He was listening to John Peel and he said, God, I really fancy an Indian dish or takeaway. And he bought him one and, you know, was there waiting at the end of the show with this kind of, oh, here you go. Oh, here's my cassette. And yeah. that was that was the start of Billy Bragg's kind of life in, in the 80s and onwards. So it's, um, yes, that's that's what you've got to do. Mug, mug DJs outside the recording studio but like you said you you know it was I think when you're younger and especially when you're on a bit of a roll and you've got a gang you can have that kind of slight arrogant naivety which you know is you can't keep that going as you get older can you really of like "Mm, not sure if you should do that so um no well the the single that I just released the O-Turn single um with with Andy from the fads um have you heard this yes I have of course so that really, that is about the sort of this incredible confidence that youth has, you know? Yeah. Sort of the older self saying, you can't walk on water. Remember when you were bulletproof, unstoppable. Um, and, that, and that feeling of, of, of that is, is so powerful when you're, you, you know, you're young, the, the incredible. I certainly had that. I just had this incredible self-confidence. Um, and, which is totally misplaced a lot of the time. But at the time, you don't think that at all. No. And we were reminiscing the other day because I'm in touch with the band. I mean, we go on holiday together and everything. Um, the fads, and we're, we're all off to Spain in the in the summer. And um, we were just talking about, we. Well, I, I managed to get a job in the post room at Chrysalis Records through, um, and I can't even remember how I did, but anyway, I wangled this job and I was in the post room. And then I started to find out who was who in, in Chrysalis Records. And I sort of, um, a, a younger self sort of charmed the receptionist. And um, so then I saw, and I managed to speak to some A&R guy. It was really, really nice. And I said, uh, I've got a band and I want to come and, you know, bring the demo tape to see you, uh, to hear. And um, he sort of said, obviously went, yeah, of course, it's great, you know, fine. So the three of us turned up and went, I'm, I'm here with a demo tape. Obviously, didn't expect me to do this. And he was he was set and he said, well, look, I did say that, but it's not really the kind of stuff that Chrysalis does, but we have a label called Fiction, which is, you know, the Cures label. And they're in such and such a square around the, the corner. Why don't you go and see them? So I was like, okay. We just went around there and knocked on the door. <laughs> All right. Yes. And, and then we came in and listened to it, you know, so – that I'm now, if I was to think about doing that now, I'd be totally terrified. I was like, no way would I do that. You know, I wouldn't just knock on someone's door and ask them to listen to my uh, my record. You know, I'd be terrified of doing that. Yes. So then the second album, which is always an interesting one, you got a big producer on this, didn't you? Which was, um, he'd worked with all these very cool American bands. Was the band at this stage still on a roll? Are you, were you still on a zeitgeist moment? Yeah, I think what we is, you know, that whole Manchester thing, we did, we um, wrote big and that had this sort of, um, you know, clubby vibe to it. And there was a remix done, John De Silva, which sort of pushed it into the sort of club environment. Everyone was doing that at the time. I mean, I think we were one of the very first to ever do it. And I must go and check one day, but um, certainly ahead of Primal Scream and those guys. And the John De Silva thing still a sort of hacienda kind of classic thing that makes on onto these sort of playlists. Um, but we were very aware, having done that, and we, we, you know, if you listen to Pigeonhole, there is a sort of, ryth- there's a strong rhythmic element of everything we did. But it's quite, a, it's, a lot of it's quite out there. There's sort of dub on there and um, 
you know, this sort of very sort of dreamy, um, uh, long, long track with lots of backward guitars and stuff. So it was never like a sort of full on, you know, clubby dance record at all. But it, it sort of suited at the time. It was almost the album that people would put on after the being to the club. Right. Kept, but you don't want to, you know, go mental to it. Um, we always had this challenge with, you know, live. We were, you know, so much more dynamic and powerful and than we ever could get across on record. So when we came to do the second record, we had a, a vision that we, we knew that we needed to really change. Um, and, and we were naturally, um, as we were learning to play a lot more, um, naturally changing. Of course, that the, the whole sort of Americana thing, you know, the... the um, I'm trying to remember the timing of it. Because well, did did Nevermind have a bit of a impact on the band? Massively, yeah. Um, we went. We. Uh, I can't remember. I can't remember now whether we heard it before we made that record, or we'd made the record and in between making it and releasing it. I think that's what happened. We heard Nevermind, and we're like, oh shit! Uh, <laughs> but our label brought it to us, and um, we put it on this huge, um, you know stereo system and it just like it's like yeah and, and this it hadn't hadn't been released and it wasn't uh no one knew it was going to be as huge as it was but our label were like they, they were the distributors in in the um europe and they just said this is going to be absolutely massive so i, th- I think my when, when did nevermind come out i guess it's 80 uh, 80 89 was bleach and then i think it was 91 I think ninety one was was never mind. Right, but well, uh, well, in that case, we definitely heard it before we did that album, because I'm pretty sure we recorded that record in ninety two. That's we got right. It released in ninety three. And whose so, idea was it to work with Craig Leon? Um, well, we interviewed a number of um, uh, producers. You know, you get like you meet them and you talk about the music and stuff. And so we we met a few and. Um, what we were very keen on is is recording it live. So that album is a live take with some overdubs on. So all all the all the playing on there, everything on there is like one, two, three, four, go, boom, and then we um, kind of fix it up afterwards because we wanted to create, you know, try and capture that that live energy. And he was yeah. the he was the only producer who was like, that's what I want to do. I want to capture you playing live and the interaction of, of you playing together. So, and then his, obviously his track record was, you know, Suicide, Blondie, Talking uh, Ramones, uh, Talking Head. I mean, you, you know, it's just incredible track record. Uh, it was very interesting working with him. It got, it got on really well with him actually, but he, um, you know, he, he we had quite a lot of um, disagreement over the mix actually. He was very good at recording and very good at getting their performances out of us. But in terms of the mix, that was a bit of a challenge. And, you know, I I, I genuinely think that, um, without sounding like too arrogant, that's a sort of a couple of beats away from being an amazing record. But it would have taken another full mix by someone else and, some, um, and a bit of editing, um, and it would have been 100 times better. But, you know... We didn't have the money and the budgets ran out and everything. So what studio did you use? Uh I can't remember the name. It was in Brussels. We went to live in Brussels for three or four months. 
my god rehearsed it up. we rehearsed it there in brussels and then we went we went straight in from an intense rehearsal period of learning the songs as we were going to put them on the the album rehearsing and then went straight into this um residential studio um which had the, the problem is that not many studios had massive live spaces even even by then there was starting to be very few and the ones that did were in in the uk were just crazy expensive you know abbey road and olympia yeah. and stuff. so we yeah we did it we did it there and um but it was a great it was it was a great um it was a very very creative the recording of it was extremely creative time um the most creative in the in the band's um short history yeah uh, we we're sort of chucking things in there all the little bits and outtakes and stuff we were making up as we went along um so it was a really enjoyable. The recording was really enjoyable. The, the mixing was a bit tougher. <laughs> Did you? What was the tour like when you went on and toured that album? It was brilliant. I mean, we, you know, we um, uh, I, those songs translated brilliantly alive. You know, they, they, they were sort of um, we. In fact, when we wrote them, we'd often sort of play a version of it. We'd always have an, an early version of it. We never frightened of playing something we hadn't quite finished or or even improvising that. So we'd sort of tested them a bit already on the road and the and the you know the impact of it. So live they just um yeah they were they came across really powerfully. And in fact, I don't know if you know about do you know about this um we've got like a 40th anniversary record. 40th play it again Sam's 40th and they've done a best of yes. Ads. So that's no done and that comes out in july the 23rd but the really interesting thing is that we the last gig we ever played was at the hacienda we multi-tracked it and we started at the time we were we'd been dropped or we were going to make some money out of it um and we started um mixing it and um and then various overdubs started happening and just and i kind of like didn't really want to have anything to do with it so we just ignored it uh so there's a load of work done on it, and then enthusiasm waned. And then about 10 years later, we had another go at it, and even more overdubs got done. And then the studio got burgled. And um, as far as we knew, the, the hard drive with all the multitrack on was stolen. So we were left with the mixes that we had, which we're never that happy with, but, you know, they're, they're okay. And um, anyway, this year, Justin and I said, right, we've got to get this record out this year, the, the live Hacienda tapes. And also, there's about seven demo songs that we've never released to anyone, the seven demos that we've got as well. And um, so I texted the engineer who'd done it, who's Elbow's engineer now. And I said, oh, by the way, we're going to put this record out just to give it a heads up because he did a lot of work. Two days later, he gets in touch and he goes, I found the hard drive. So somewhere in amongst Elbow's hard drive library, this hard drive turns up. And even then, it didn't work with a modern computer. No. But the guy at the studio, who we know is, is Elbow's tour manager, he had the original computer in a pigsty in Stafford, drove down to Stafford, managed to fire up this 30-year-old Apple Mac, read the hard drive, got the files off, and put it on a modern computer. And actually, without all the shit we were done over to the past, you know, when we were overdubbing, it sounds incredible. And those songs on there, Beatlemania and It's Not What You Know and, and so on, and Stockholm just sound amazing. And they, they just, that's actually how we sounded, really. And, and um, it, it's it's quite, um, 
moving to it, heard it again in, in, in its original form. So that's coming out this year as well. So we've discovered that. Um, but that's like this ridiculous sort of Indiana Jones yes. story. <laughs> totally bizarre. It's, it could be that little story could be put into a Netflix kind of fictionalized, you know, story, you know, narrative about a band, really, couldn't it? It was, um, yes, unbelievable. I mean, it's almost, yeah, I've never heard such an incredible story. I've heard a few, Kramer from, you know, America, who yeah. did, uh, you know, had some recordings of Galaxy 500 and went, oh, I think you might need these. Or, it's like, oh, I, you know, I forgot. What, <laughs> you know, it was all those kind of, I yeah. suppose a lot of these things are just sitting around in people's cupboards, which as a fan, you never think that would happen, that occasionally people go, oh, yeah, we were just looking at it in the cupboard and we found these amazing recordings. But surely someone would have been curious, you know, but, you know, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think which one, you know, there's a little bit of me believes in serendipity. Uh, I think that just in the sense that when you start, you know, focusing on something, um, a lot of conversation and thought and energy start getting directed to that thing naturally. Um, so having, you know, having to put, which has proved quite um, onerous, the administration of putting your record out, um, and, and it's got me quite focused on the back catalogue of the fads because I started going, well, we've got to get this organised properly. <laughs> and I started going because I was registering my tracks on MCPS and I started looking at the fads and the stuff missing. You know, you see, you start starting to focus on them. The 40th thing comes out and think, we'll resurrect that. And then you start talking to people about it. And so if it's going to be found at any given time, it's going to be now because there's that energy and focus in, in people's attention you know, amongst the group of people who would know where it possibly would be. Yes. And then lo and behold, it turns up. I know. Well, it's, yeah, I know. It's interesting, isn't it? We suddenly get very excited about archives, and I've suddenly realised a few a few moments, I suppose, it's to do with, you know, illness and death and, and realising what happens to people's places and stuff. And it's like, well, when someone goes, someone will just go, oh, we've got that house to clear, and they'll just get a skip and just everything will go in it including yeah. you know the photographs and you know things like oh yeah that's a bit weird isn't it it's most stuff you just think you know vhs cassettes books but like you know tapes people just kind of so you know yes if you didn't get it now that would really be well at landfill very soon won't it so absolutely um, yeah and and, and it's great because now you've archived well hopefully archiving it will come out and uh there's still time to sort of enjoy the narrative and the kind of process and i know gordon brought a book out didn't he from world of twist which was quite i don't know if you read it but it's kind I've of read it it's um it is very good. There's a new publisher, like, is it Nine Eight Books, who've been bringing all these people who basically your generation have been writing their memoirs of their time in music. And um, they're all really good books. And, and Gordon's is a very good one. And yeah. Simon Williams, who did Fierce Panda and Mickey from Lush and everybody's yeah. been, you know, but if they didn't do it now, they would probably not, you know. People are interested in it now, aren't they? They wouldn't have been 10 years before. It's like, no, I can't be bothered. 10 years later, we can't be bothered. But at the moment, it's just perfect because we're still, we've still got our memories. And <laughs> Well, I think it's an interesting. It is. Timing is everything, isn't it? And, uh, you know, we've been asked to play live a, a number of times and, and offer quite a lot of money, actually. Um, but we've always turned it down. Um because it felt like for for us, it always felt like that was a moment of time that captured us, that really required that sort of um, like I talked about the confidence of youth and the self belief and the energy, um, and it, it's not the kind of music you can. It's not strummy guitar music where you could you know 
you get a bit of a beat going and everything, people can pick it up easily. It's, it's quite, not that it's incredibly complicated, but it's very, very rehearsed. So we've always just resisted that because, you know, we feel like we want to be remembered with that, that moment in time um, and not suddenly be sort of five old fat blokes doing a, a sort of a tribute band to ourselves. But I do think there are things that really, you know, that do work re really well and coming coming back. And it, I think it depends on the kind of music um, yes. that is made. Some some stuff suits it and it's, it's fine, but some really doesn't. And I think we'd be one of those. It's tricky, isn't it? I noticed, yeah. Anyway, so when you came, your third album, a 95, when you went to record it, did you feel like this, because it was kind of an interesting time, we'd suddenly... I know another great, you know, um, Britpop, another great sort of uh, sub, sub, another, you know, genre to put music into, even if it didn't fit. We like to, you know, like you mentioned earlier. So did you feel like you were sort of slipping into that world? Because there was a whole new wave of fans coming along who were into festies and dancing and there was a lot yeah. of jollity. This is the John Major years. We were so happy in the John Major years, weren't we? It's amazing that we look back at that nostalgically now. That's how bad things have got. <laughs> yes, well, he didn't disappoint, did he? That's yeah. the thing with Major. He's never been, he never let us down. We hated him at the time, but you yeah. know, that's that's life. But yeah, so when you went to record the third album, what was the atmosphere like in the band? Well, I think it was starting to get quite difficult just because I think um, we were at a crossroads, really, of... of um, you know, you, you remember these sort of certain points. Remember, we, we, we were touring American, touring Body Exit Mind, and actually Stockholm had, had really done well on college radio there. And um, we did this epic tour of the States, and um, I can't remember where we were, but we were all ill, I remember that. And the label came in and said, look, you know, we think we'd like you to go to Japan and then come back to the States and do this again because we think you've got, you've got traction. And we all just went, no, we're not. And I think at that moment, you kind of knew a little bit that, you know, you 2 just spent like, I'm not saying we're going to be you 2 but, you know, bands like Do Break It spend like five years just going around and around and around and around. Um, so by the time we got to that third uh, album, I think we were under pressure to, um, to write, uh, we, you know, we had this Stockholm should have been, uh, a chartered in this country and the label play it against them, which I still struggle to this day to forgive them, put the wrong version in the shops with no barcode on. So everyone went out and bought the demo version with no barcode and it didn't chart. Um, so that has always been a, a very uh, sort of thing that really annoyed us. But we, we were under the, they were trying to get us to look at that sort of blueprint. You know, Oasis were rehearsing next door to us, literally through the wall. Um, and um, we we was talking to their manager Marcus Russell, who was going, who was interested in managing us before the manager Oasis, and we were like, "Why the fuck is he managing that pile of shite next door?" Turns <laughs> out he was right. Um, so <laughs> we uh, so I think what we were doing is we we were sort of at this point where we got like, "Do we take this seriously? You know, really seriously? This is our lives." um or not and uh, and we there was a sort of split in, in in a sense of how well you could play your instrument so some of us had got very good at playing or certainly very good at playing in the new fads and other people were 
but kind of lagging behind a bit. So there was a bit of tension around that. I think there was a bit of tension around the vision of that album um, between myself and Justin. Um, and I was very much like, we've got to be pragmatic and and, and make a, a record that people are going to like um, and is relevant now at, you know, at that time. Um, and I think Justin was sort of thinking much longer term, long, had a longer view on it. Um, I don't think either of us were were wrong or either of us were right, you know. Um, so that was difficult. And Andy had a then Andy had a genuine re, had this terrible uh, back problem. And I know this sounds sort of innocuous, but it's also when you singers having to lie on the ground and do the vocals, you start thinking, "Where's the future in this?" <laughs> so, however, I think uh, we had a lot of a lot of tension with the producer on that one as well. Um, and the first, and then in fact, that album was mixed at Aronoco. Uh, and then we, I went back and remixed most of that album and redid the guitars on most of the album because he'd sort of blended it out too much. Um, so I think, I, I think there's some great moments on that record though. And, um, you know, it's, it's not no one's favorite, all the people I know like Fads, it's no one's favorite album, but I think it's some outstanding songs on there. I think, you know, Monday is is brilliant. I think Foolish Things is brilliant on that. I think Souvenir, that last track, you know, I, I, Andy was really coming into his own as a as a lyricist. Yeah. And he still, for me, has written some of the best lyrics I've ever heard in my life. And, you know, the, the line in Stockholm, can't piece together the sun and the sky and the spots on my face. That's sort of the, the dilemma of youth. You know, you, you're sort of in that little line is all there, you know, you're sort of, dreaming and looking at the sky and wondering what the word but you're still worried about your pimple on the end of your nose yes and and, and there's the words on that album some of the words i mean the, the words on this these foolish things are just incredible uh you know this sort of really about robert maxwell but you know if, if you listen to the words and, and it's just brilliant absolutely brilliant um, so there's loads of really good things on there, but I think we kind of also we were sort of trying to be uh, trying too hard to be relevant. So we did sort of remixes with Fuzzy Logic on a couple of things, and you know into that sort of big beat yeah. place, which sort of felt natural to us. So we were kind of probably pushing ourselves in the in the, in the wrong direction. And and did you tour that album as well? We did, yeah. I mean, we played. Uh, we did a. Um, Certainly, uh, it's all sort of um, blurring. We certainly played like a festival tour in the Europe and, and then a, a UK tour. But, you know, things, you know, were, were, the audiences are getting smaller, you know. And and the the the, the, the Britpop thing, you know, our, our sensibility didn't chime very well with that, really. There was a sort of era of professionalism as well that started to come into it a little bit and um you know that's just the, that's the cycle of things really isn't it you know yes but the mean, bottom line with it all is you've got to write the hit record you've got to write the record the song that cuts through um and if you do that you'll be fine but if you don't you won't be and we didn't so we weren't you know yes it is yeah you yeah, I mean, there was that famous tape, isn't there, in the Trogs, where the Trogs are recording, and uh, <laughs> and keep saying, you know, sprinkle some fairy dust on it, and um, and trying to get the drummer to go along with a particular beat, and they're just getting more and more frustrated. But it was that thing of like, 
you know, the, the fairy dust line is great, isn't it? And um, Put your yeah. hands. Put your hands. <laughs> but what was very interesting after, after doing that, so we had that was a sort of a bit of a, a, a bruising experience. But what when we started writing, we took in these new rehearsal rooms, which are the old offices, uh, empty offices above the Hacienda. So we had this whole floor and little offices off there, which we created a little, you know, like almost a control room. Uh, and then the stuff we were writing at the end there, I you know, I felt that we'd kind of got over that bump, that difficult third album. Um, we were writing really, we, we sort of managed to reconcile the sort of heaviness of Body Exit Mind with the, the sort of rhythmic light touch of the other records. Um, and we were writing really, really interesting stuff. Um, and we were really enthused by it. And we then went to the label and said, you know, because the new technologies were coming on digital recording and stuff, and the price of you know the last album we recorded it cost hundred and something thousand quid, it's ridiculous. Um, no one should spend a hundred thousand pounds on a record for, on a band like us. It's staffed. So we went to them and said, look, we only need like forty grand, and we build a studio, and you can have the next three albums. Um, from us, and I yes. think they were thinking about it. Um. But anyway, they didn't, and uh, they, as they say, that's the rest is history. And so we were, went very determinedly. Justin went off and did his only child stuff and all the Grand Central stuff, and then eventually the Electrons. I went off with um, the sound engine I was talking about before and Icarus, and we did a project and released a couple of things under different names out of that. Did some great work, um, but it never quite happened, you know. Um, mm. And then you start having kids. Yes. And then I'm here now, 25 years later. But then, but what else did you, because I was looking at your various websites and LinkedIn pages. So you got into quite a lot of other projects, didn't you? What do you mean, non-music or musical? Well, sort of, did you get into production management? Was that you or was that some other person with your name? I don't... I don't think anyone's got my name. (laughs) <laughs> I, did do, I mean, I, did, I produced a couple of bands. I produced uh, Blamo and I produced what well, we did, Cud, and we did, uh, um, I can't remember the names of the ones. And then I did, um, and then I, there was a, a label in Manchester called Hub, and I was sort of involved in that. No, what they weren't called Hub. What were they called? They were called Urbanite. That's right. Yes. So I was involved in that and, and put, put some music out via that, helped them a little bit. I ran the Great Manchester Music Action Zone, which was a sort of um, uh, a music charity, but also sort of did a town spotting thing and put stuff out up there for the for the young people of Manchester and that. Then I got involved in events and festivals and producing festivals and and stuff. Yes. So and, is this is this ear to the ground? So then, yeah. So then, I, but I joined you at the ground. I was. Um, I joined you at the Grand's commercial manager just because they used to waste loads of money. And I just said, look, I can make you money. Um, and, and they're doing events at the time. And that quickly morphed. Well, they, they split the two parts of the business, one the festivals business, one into marketing business. And then I then went with the marketing side of it just because I just thought I haven't done that before. That's something interesting. And then I fast forward a few years into that, I ended up buying myself and a couple of other people bought into the business right and then it's now a fully fledged advertising agency 
80 people um and, and i've been running that for the past sort of you know six seven years um and, and that's it's just advertising it's playstation it's new balance it's um yeah a total change of career that is a very big change of career but then you've come back or coming back with a new musical project which we've been listening to Yes, so that that really uh, is one of those things where you know I I must have written a song a year for the past, um, you know, twenty five years, and um, just kind of out of the blue, what Picasso said, you know, um, uh, inspiration has to find you hard at work, and um, I, I bought uh, the first thing happened is I bought a accident. Kind of, we did a project at work, and we bought all these microphones to use on a photo shoot, and we didn't use a number of them, so we got a credit note off the music shop, and someone came up to the office and said, "Oh, you play music here? You have the credit note." So I went to the music shop and I thought I'll just buy something I wouldn't normally buy, because it's just sort of hit to nothing. So I bought a loop pedal uh, for the guitar. And then at the same time, my daughter, we had a terrible old piano that was all the keys didn't work on. My daughter was starting to learn how to play the piano. So I bought secondhand, you know, electric, but decent piano. And then lockdown happened. And those sort of three things. And I genuinely, I, I sort of picked up guitar. And I, every time I picked it up, I got sat at the piano, something else had come out. And I must have written about 80% of it within the first sort of six months. It was so fast. Mm. And um, so I sent one off to Andy, and then I sent the track off to Tracy from Bandit Queen, who's a good friend of mine. So, well, my sister is a singer, and she was doing backing vocals, and then I sent one off to her. And I sent um, a couple of tracks off to another friend of mine, and very quickly we got it. And I thought, oh my god, I'm writing an album, and everything. <laughs> it, it, it starts to sort of put the fear of God into me because it's such, it's so hard to write an album. It's so difficult. Um, so I, I was very conscious. I briefed everyone in on the thematically of what I was interested in, which was trying to write a record that really is more about um, being older, about what you know, you know, yes. and, 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 and reflection. And everyone was talking a lot about that during lockdown. Um, and then I, I got kind of stuck. So I started then going through the tracks, recording them properly, finding someone to mix them, getting them mixed and so on. And I just got really stuck. And I knew there was this, I had to have this one song that would complete it. And I didn't know what the song was, but I just knew it wasn't complete till I had this song. So I spent about 18 months trying to write this other song. And then obviously, lo and behold, what happens is you were sitting with an acoustic guitar and then 20 minutes later, I finish it. And I knew at that point I'd done it. And I didn't want to lose it. So I recorded it, rang my neighbor up, who's two doors down, who's a percussionist, said, Come around, get your con, play on this. Um, and uh, it, it, that was it, sent it off. And I knew at that point I'd finished it. And it was it was complete in my head. Yeah. Even though albums, people don't listen to albums anymore. In my, my sort of like, I didn't care. I just wanted it to be to hear it and say that I'd done that and achieved that, you know, um, 25 years later. So, Blimey, what was the track, by the way? What was the last piece? The last track was called The Crown. Right. And, uh, really, it's sort of a, 
you know, a message to, I guess, to my to my kids and 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 you know that obviously I'm not going to be here one day, <laughs> um, but not in a not in a really uh, in a sad way and not in a world betide, uh, you know, betide me kind of way. Just um, it's just one of those things that sort of comes to you um, out the blue. And so everything in the in everything on the album, certainly the ones I sing on, are, are kind of that reflection of getting older and. Um, you know, and Andy's songs about the the confidence of youth and um, the you know everything's got thematically lyrically. Even though I didn't write all the words, mm. a that, um, that kind of feel or, or or looking back. And I I'm not I hate nostalgia. I really hate nostalgia. So that was another interesting thing for me was to sort of play around with that idea of looking back because I I hate looking back. So I got quite interested in that, and it felt like a a really um, it felt like with nostalgia, it feels like you go to the edge of it, and if you step too far, you start to wallow. and And, and I'm always been terrified of getting sucked into yes that, and 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 only ever listening to you know late '80s indie music or the early '90s indie. Music. You know, you know. So I've always really resisted that. So it's quite interesting to flirt with that and play with it, but like not go, you know, not go too far. Yes. Were you a little bit aware of David Bowie's Black Star album, you know, and that kind of his process that he was possibly get well, he was going through when he was recording it? Did you did you think, oh, this is quite an interesting experience? Because we didn't have that when we were growing up. That and we had blues players and jazz players and various others, but not yeah. anybody particularly in the rock world writing songs about death who had once written songs about beautiful lovely ideas and yeah. thoughts and and you know making love all night as if you yeah <laughs> which is you know an interesting concept so um yeah and then sort of black star comes out and it's like wow that's a little bit kind of heavy i just wondered if you were also kind of aware of just that kind of emotional process that you were putting into this this album yeah i mean I, you know look i would never compare myself to david bowie and i think that is a you know, a phenomenal uh, life lived as an artist right up to the absolute, you know, last moment, which is stunning. Uh, in the the, the in, again, the sort of or that, I'm always amazed when I, you know, whatever I'm reading or, or listening to, and then when I'm what I'm really impressed is the audacity of some people just to think of something and do that. And I was like, you know, like you know, the history of seven killings. If you've ever read that, you know. Um, Marlon James, you read that and you go, whether you like the book or not, you're thinking the audacity to go, I'm going to write this story and it's going to span like several generations and it's going to start with people trying to bump off Bob Marley and it's going to end up with a crack epidemic in in America. And just and I felt like that with the, the, the Bowie record, I felt like the audacity almost to go, actually, I'm going to make this last act my, you know, part of my life and, and my work of art. So I was I was aware of that, and I, I love you know I was blown away by the whole thing. Um, but I, I guess really, I, I suppose you're influenced by everything, aren't you? But for me, it felt much more. Um, uh, I wasn't consciously doing that. It just kind of it was almost like I'd written three songs, and I was like, oh, hang on, there's a bit of a thing going on, and I wonder why that is. And you know, obviously we're in lockdown. Maybe it's a bit of headspace to look back on 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 uh on life a little bit because everyone was reflecting and i just felt oh well this would be interesting if i go with this 
rather than trying to, which I normally would be like, oh my God, what am I doing? <laughs> Get rid of it. I thought it'll be quite interesting just to go with this a little bit. And maybe that's what's why I haven't written much is you, you need to write what you know. Um, and I do know about being a 56 year old man. Yes. <laughs> Three kids, you know, so that's an interesting, for me, that's an interesting topic, whether other people like that or not is, a, is another, another matter, I guess. It's interesting because quite, you know, a few people I've interviewed, they've kind of sat, you know, on this kind of door, trap door, you know, thinking I'm definitely never doing music again. That was it. I'm going to be a serious person, the kids, the house, the relationships and all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, something, you know, starts to sort of like the door starts to open, the creek, you know, it creaks open. And then suddenly they just kind of pull out the guitar and start playing it and thinking, actually, yeah, I haven't touched this for 30 years. You know, it's a kind of almost a bit of a, yeah cliche and then suddenly it's like oh actually you know two in the morning are suddenly playing music and thinking god i didn't ever want to do this again but suddenly yeah. it's kind of got you back in again <laughs> it's like, i mean i had no plans or any in, in, in intention of doing that i've always loved playing the guitar um but i had no plans for that and i never had any plans to write an album and it was really but it's one of those things as well like when you um when you're writing uh, or you're you're, you're with people or, or individually, it's very, very hard, especially individually, it's very hard to know if it's any good. Really, you know, that's that's the the difficult in a way, the, the the most important asset any musician has is taste. You know? And mm. um and I kind of but <laughs> I knew it was good. <laughs> I just knew it was good. And and, and I don't I didn't need anyone to tell me that. Now, every if I spent the, went through every the other twenty five songs I've written over the past twenty five years, I'd probably be going, not too sure actually. <laughs> maybe that's a bit shit that actually, or maybe it's brilliant, but I don't really know. Um, but I felt very certain about this. I felt certain it was it was good, and I was onto something. When yes. I haven't had that feeling since you know, writing with the fads. Yeah, it's interesting. So that album. You've got the single coming out, and you've got the album coming out in June, is it? Yeah. And is it going to be on Bandcamp and then CD? The O'Turn album is 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 just is is stream, is right? On Spotify and and uh, Apple Music and Deezer, whatever the other ones are. Yeah. Um, I think where we're looking to do next, we we um. So there's the the Water Boatman came out. April, um, a walk in capitals with featuring Tracy from Bandit Queen comes out this week, I think, at the end of this week. Um, and then the crown, the, the record we're talking, the song we're talking about before comes out in June. Sorry, and then the album comes out in July. Right. Um, so and then we're just going to see. I really would like to do some vinyl, and I'm just sort of trying to work out what the appetite is for that. So rather than just sort of stick it out there i've you know put a bit of um effort around people support me around social media and stuff which is i haven't been on social media at all i just don't like it particularly but i'm having to engage a little bit with yes. you know facebook and, and instagram and stuff um and that's quite that's an interesting again that's an interesting project it's an interesting thing to do how is music promoted and made these days and you know how does social work in that i have no idea frankly and so Again, it's almost back to what's saying the total naivety. It's like, how hard can it be? <laughs> um, so, yes. yeah, it's, but it's just interesting to do that. And I, I really have no, um, 
you know, I don't have any major ambitions for it. Um, you know, I, I want obviously people to hear it and I want people to like it and enjoy it. Um, but it's not like uh, I'm, you know, when I was young, where I was like, I've got to make a career out of this. This, this is my my future. Um, but how, you know, what I, I've already probably written the the second one, second album now, and I've just got to sort of work my way through that. So it's keeping me busy in a, in a positive way doing yes. things, and and you know, my work life is quite full on and everything. So it's a sort of a welcome release as well, you know. Yeah, and then later on in the year. The Fads album is going to be coming out as well. Yeah. This the live one at the Hacienda, yeah. and then the fortieth anniversary best of is released as well. So will they be on vinyl or, or sort of CD or downloads? Yeah. So the the um, the best of uh, play it again, Sam, uh, which is the studio recordings, that's on vinyl. In fact, I've got copies in the in the house now, um, as well as streaming. And then the uh, live record will be Bandcamp and the demos. And we've also actually got the uh, the first demos. In fact, I just remember the first demos we recorded at the kitchen as well as being digitized. So the very first things we ever recorded in the kitchen in Hume in 1988 or whenever it was, we're going to put those out as well. So um, they've sort of, again, they've sort of existed in bits and we've yes. managed to pull them together into all live in one place so they're kind of like a nice you know a nice um a nice little history there as well so and and then it'd be interesting to see how people react i mean the demos are really rough on an eight track and um but the songs uh you could have you can hear what the fourth ep fourth lp would have would have sounded like and where it was going you get a, a really good sense of that yes. and then the live records are stunning you know they're really this is the one, isn't it? I know you. I, I sort of see how many streams you get on Spotify a month. It's quite impressive, really. So um, I guess this will give a, a bit of a boost to that. And you, yeah. met, you met. You often mention Tracy. Is that Tracy Carmen that you? No, no, it's Tracy uh, Godding, and she. Uh, it was in a band um, originally, a band called Swirl, who were label mates on Playtime, but then she went on to form a band called Band Queen, um, who. Again, it's one of those things that, you know, I, I think she faced a lot of, as an openly gay woman, and there was, it was two women and a, and a, a man in the band, but there was this sort of slightly sneering, condescending, it was sort of Oasis time, and it was like blokes and lads, and, yes. and the girl had to be a singer, and, you know, um, so I, I can only really think of someone like PJ Harvey really breaking that mould at that time. Um, so she faced quite a, quite a lot of uh, difficulty, I think. Um, but I was just, she's just an amazing songwriter. I mean, although the song she sings for me, I wrote. She's an amazing songwriter. Um, and I've worked with her on and off doing stuff um, over the years, uh, particularly post uh, New Fads, we did quite a bit. And she's just one of those incredibly talented people. But I, I wanted to sing the song, the second single I've got coming out, I Walk in Capitals, which is a sort of, again, a sort of nostalgic look back at the, you know, sort of romantic possibilities of walking around some of the world's great cities and being on tour and meeting people. Yes. Um, and she has this sort of fantastic uh, torch singer quality to her, her voice. She's got a sort of, there's a lot of drama there, breathiness and drama. And I just thought she'd sound amazing doing that. And she, you know, one of one of those things when you send it off, and it's like a a gift when you get it back. It's 
unbelievably better than you could have ever possibly imagined. Amazing. Yeah, she's so she's done uh, that, and and I'm working on a. I'm doing some mixes for her at the moment on her 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 stuff, and then we've got a couple of um, other songs we're working on at the moment as well in the background. God, that's all go, isn't it? (laughs) Yes, it is. Yeah. This is fantastic. I mean, if you could have whispered something to your 16-year-old self starting out, you know, some worldly advice that you might have thought, oh, yeah, that would have been useful. Is there anything in particular that you might have said, oh, that's worth doing or checking out or avoiding? I don't know, really. I, I have thought about this, and I knew I kind of on this, raising this topic, I would get asked this question <laughs> in my interviews. I don't think so. I think I wouldn't say anything. Because, as I said before, the information uh, it it stops you doing things, um, and I really enjoyed the as much as it was. You know, times it's been painful and frustrating. You know, being in a band and record labels and managers and trying to make a career out of it. And there's, you know, I think there's nothing. I, th- I think with any nod prior knowledge, probably there would be lots of it I wouldn't have done, which in itself. Uh, you know, perhaps uh, is a bit debilitating. I think one thing that that would really um, maybe one thing that would be a great benefit is that as a young man, I think you need to be amongst your fellow bandmates, whoever they may be. You need a sort of an emotional security to be able to really produce um, the the range of music that you're capable of. And I don't think we had that. I think we were probably a bit, you know, pull your socks up, man. Yeah. Uh, don't sing about it. what are you singing about feelings for, kind of thing. Um, and so I think that's a that's a, a lesson I've sort of learned. But you know, maybe that's maybe that's um, again that's something that uh, you know, without that, you know, you wouldn't have produced the other stuff. So mm-hmm. probably go around the houses here, but. No, yeah. I wouldn't. <laughs> I wouldn't tell myself anything. <laughs> no, but it's a quite an interesting point, you know, about emotional security and being able to be vulnerable. You know, that's you know one of those things, isn't it? And trusting that it will be okay. Yeah, something like that. Anyway, look, thank you ever so much for this. And if you want, I can always send you the link, and then you can always you know use it elsewhere. But um, yeah. yes, well, I'm looking forward to this second the second single. Actually, I'm very curious with this. So um, yeah. when did you say it's coming out soon? I think it comes out on 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 uh, Friday. I think. Friday. I, I can't remember actually. I have to go and check. It's but what made... I will do is I've sent um, I've, I've sent well, I did some other mixes of uh, you know quite radically different mixes of the of the singles as I've gone along, which aren't going to be released until after the the album is released. Yeah. But you know shows like yours and stuff. If you're interested in playing anything yeah. out it's like a, a kind of an exclusive so the a walking capitals i got this fabulous kind of semi-classical pianist because i played the piano on it but my yeah. piano is like <laughs> ding, ding and he's a fantastic piano player and i just got in touch with him and he's a kind of a label mate and i said look you know this is the tune do you fancy play? and he loved it so with that sort of torchy breathy singing of tracy's we did this sort of just the piano and a little bit of synths and stuff, um, which has just come out beautifully, um, fantastically. So I'd love to send that to you in a few. Yes, if you, if you, that would be amazing. I'd love to play it. Yeah, yes. It's very, very different, you know. 
That'd be good. That'd be good. Well, look, I'll keep an eye out of all the new material. It's sort of, like you said, you know, it's not, actually, I really like listen to sort of something that I haven't heard before, even if, if, if that thing's been and gone, it's still quite nice not to, you know, to play something, to, just to be excited by a new yeah. sound, isn't it, to be honest. So, um, yeah, I know what you mean. You don't want to sit there playing the shine greatest hits from the nineties. really. So. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the great thing is there's more great music being made than there ever has been. I just think it lacks. What happens is it doesn't have the cultural uh, oomph and impact that it did have just because we've got so many things to distract our attention now. Yes. But in terms of the music being made, I mean, it's incredible. And my daughter really is hugely into music. She's 14. She keeps playing me things. Um, and I was like, you know, like, why haven't I heard of this? This is like absolutely amazing. So yes. I mean, I'm a huge fan of, 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 of new music and I try and keep in touch with that as much as I can because there's more good stuff to be found now than I think there's ever been, really. Yeah, I've been listening to um, a, Liver, a Liverpool band who are, you know, yet quite youngish kids, but they've got a really great sound and great energy. And um, what yeah. they called? Yes, what are they called? Oh, I will tell you. It's on my playlist actually, which is so tricky. I'll have to try and find it. I kind of get the feeling it's called, you know, it's like being an old person. You just, you just, oh no, dismiss that. I'll, I'll tell you what it's called. And then you have a listen and you think, Christ, yeah. does, he, does he listen? Does he listen? No, I'm just really, I'm, I, I love, rec I love getting a recommendation of people. Oh, the band are called Stone, S-T-O-N-E. And they had, I heard this song called Left, Right, Forward. And then I started listening to other tracks from them. And I think, God, that's a great vibe. <laughs> So um, Stone left, yeah. So I, I would definitely listen. And there was a sort of woman who just brought an album out called Jessica Ware W A R E. Oh and yeah. She, and she's got one called Begin Again, which I quite liked. You know, it was you know just came out, and I'm always curious. So it's like okay, um, yeah, there you have it. It's got to be done. But yes, there you have it. That's that's my top tip, Stone. Right. You'll Thank you very much. I'll look forward to picking it up. Brilliant. Right. I'm going to have tea. Thanks again. This has been right. amazing. Thank you. Thank take you. Care. Thanks Cheers. for your time. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yes, a massive thank you to Do Dolan Hewison for giving me the time for that. Talking about his life in music, past and also present. I will give you his uh, the link to the new musical project in the notes below. But uh, do check it out. It does sound very good so far. This has been the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. If you want to contact me, you can, for some nice reason, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86 Show. You will find me lurking in a slightly social media type of way. Also, all these interviews have been archived. Aren't you lucky? You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. There you go. Have a great week. Stay safe.